We're reading from Hebrews 10, 1 to 14. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now I want to start this morning with a question. Now I want you to be honest in your answer. You don't have to call it out loud. I don't even want you to write it down. I just want you to come up with the answer in your head to this question. If you are here today as someone who calls yourself a Christian, why do you think God accepts you? Why do you think that God is willing to have you as one of his people? Why do you think God would let you into heaven? So what's your answer to that question? Ask yourself honestly, we're looking at a passage in Hebrews this morning where the writer wants to talk about how it is that we are made right with God, the basis for our relationship with God. His readers had a little bit of a problem at this level. They were wanting to revert to the old covenant, the old basis for a relationship with God. They wanted to be a part of that system of sacrifices and offerings. They wanted to go back to the system where there were priests and temples and tabernacles. But the writer wants to show them that there's only one way to friendship with God. There's only one way into a relationship with God. Now, again, I've been saying this all the way through looking at Hebrews, and it's really important for us to remember. I don't think we face the same danger that they faced in this letter. I mean, it's not as if we're going to be starting up animal sacrifices here in this church, although I do have a cat that I wouldn't mind getting rid of. But there are people who are a little bit mixed up and confused about how it is that we become friends with God. So, like the readers of this letter, we need to listen carefully to what he has to say here. When my younger son, Ben, was in year six, I was one of the lucky dads who got to go on the excursion to Old Baiwong Town. I'm not sure if you know where that is. 
Uh, in year six, all the kids have to go. They're forced by the government to go on an excursion to Canberra for three days. And one of the things that you do is you stop in at this place called Old Bywong Town. Actually, it was your excursion, this, wasn't it? Well, it was with Jacob, that's right, when Jacob was in year six. And we got to visit Old Bywong Town. And Old Bywong Town is an old gold mining town that sprang up in the mid-1800s when gold was found in that area and then died almost as quickly as it sprang up. But all of the buildings are still there. So you can take the kids there and get a good idea of what life looked like in those times, I mean, it's all still there. The, 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 the huts that they lived in, the buildings that they used, the places where they mined for the gold, it's all still there in old Baiwong Town. And it gives you a great idea into what life was like in old Baiwong Town. But if you wanted to go to old Covenant Town, if you wanted to visit Israel and see what life was like under the Old Covenant, if you wanted to catch a clear glimpse of that, then the thing that you needed to see, the thing that you needed to understand, is the sacrificial system. And we've got a little bit of a glimpse of what the uh, sacrificial system may have looked like here with a, with a couple of pictures. Uh, see, the sacrificial system was something that completely dominated life in the Old Covenant. It was something that completely overshadowed everything that you did. Uh, I got a, 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 a uh, every day there were sacrifices being made. Every day there were animals being sacrificed, and every day you were being confronted with the fact that your sin is the barrier between you and a relationship with God. Uh, here's a chart out of a out of a Bible dictionary that gives you a bit of an idea of what regular sacrifices were to be made. These are just the regular, normal sacrifices that were to be made in Israel during the course of a year. Every year, there'd be more than 1,200 animals sacrificed at these these special occasions and festivals. Every year, more than 1,200 animals. Now, this doesn't take into account burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, or fellowship offerings, where more animals would be sacrificed. There was just an endless stream of sacrifices taking place. People today often think about the temple in Israel and and kind of imagine that it would have been like one of our old cathedrals, that it would have been a quiet place where you'd contemplate your relationship with God. But that's not what the temple would have looked like. The temple would have looked a little bit more like this. And it would have sounded more like an abattoir than a temple as well. See, that's the thing. You would go to the temple, you'd go to the tabernacle, you'd take along your goat or your lamb or possibly the the cow that was going to be sacrificed. And you were reminded of your sin. You were reminded that your sin stood as a barrier between you and a relationship with God. And every year... They had the National Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, it was called. The National Sacrifice for Sin. It was here that the sin of the whole nation was laid bare and declared to everybody. It was here that the sin of the nation was paid for. The priest, the high priest would go through a ritual to achieve forgiveness for the people. That's what life would have looked like in old covenant town. Now, there's one thing that gets stressed right throughout this letter, but especially in the passage that we're looking at today. 
the writer wants to say those sacrifices didn't bring about forgiveness. They didn't really deal with sin. Uh, If you've got your Bible there, follow through with a few verses with me. Uh, Chapter 10, verse number 1, partway through that verse. For this reason, it, that is sacrifices, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Jump down to verse 4, partway through that verse. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jump down to verse 11. Day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I read those verses, and there's just really one question that springs to mind for me. Why in the world did God make them do it? Why did he make them keep repeating those sacrifices when they're not really dealing with sin? Well, the sacrifices were repeated for two reasons. And the first reason is there in chapter 10, verse number 3. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Those sacrifices served as a constant reminder that we human beings, we're sinful. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I probably don't need to be reminded of that. I only need to look around and I can see sinful people everywhere. But it's a reminder that I'm sinful as well. Not just that I'm living among sinful people. As I said, the highlight of every religious year for the people of Israel was this Day of Atonement. It was a national day. It it would have probably been a public holiday where everybody came to the temple or to the tabernacle to watch this spectacle. But the strange thing was, that very sacrifice, that annual reminder, showed the very weakness of the whole system, didn't it? The fact that you have to keep making sacrifices meant that sin wasn't being paid for. But have a look at the very first verse of chapter 10. See, this is the other important reason that these sacrifices were made. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The things that happened under the old covenant, the writer's been saying this the whole way through Hebrews, that's just a shadow. The reality is Jesus. All the way through the letter, the writer's been wanting to say that every single element of that old covenant finds its fulfilment in Jesus. And it's absolutely true when it comes to the question of these sacrifices. I think one of the great frustrations for me in life has been paying off our home loan. Uh, We didn't get our first home until we were about 40. We got our first home loan at that time. And I can remember when the first statement came. I think they sent us a statement after about six months. I'd seen how much money had been sucked out of our bank account. So when that statement came, I thought, wow, we must just about own this place by now. They've taken so much money from us. So when the bank statement came, it showed me three things. It showed me how much we owed to begin with, how much we'd paid off, but also how much interest had accumulated during that time. And we'd hardly paid off anything. 
Like, we'd almost paid off nothing off this home loan. Six months, I'd been watching these massive amounts of money going out of our bank account, and six months later, we own almost nothing of this house. We still owe the bank almost as much as we did at the beginning. Just seemed wrong to me. I'm sure there's something wrong with this system. But I can't help but think that that must have been the way that the people of Israel felt when they went down to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur, for this national day of sin. Day of atonement. I mean, imagine being there. It would have been quite a spectacle. Everybody's turned up for it. The priest goes through this whole routine, this whole ritual. But even as you're standing there, you know you're going to be back there next next year. You know it's going to all be happening again. Because this isn't dealing with sin. And there'll be more sin next year. The sacrifices didn't really deal with sin. But the sacrifice Jesus made did. He did what animal sacrifices couldn't do. His sacrifice really does deal with sin. Have a look at chapter 9 and partway through verse 26. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. In Jesus' death, sin really is dealt with. His sacrifice has taken away the sin of many people. What animal sacrifices couldn't do, Jesus has done. Those animal sacrifices for the people of Israel, they served as a continual reminder of sin and they served as a pointer to Jesus, what he would come and do. But like it says in this passage, sin is dealt with once and for all in Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus means that there's nothing else to do. In fact, there's nothing else that can be done to pay for sin. Jesus has done it once for all time. Back to chapter 9 again. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after death face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Sin is dealt with completely through the death of Jesus. Chapter 10, verse number 12. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had appeared, had, sorry, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that a weird idea? By what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, he's made you and me perfect while God continues to make us holy. 
doesn't seem quite right, does it? That we've been made perfect by what Jesus has done, but there's the refining process that's going to take place through the course of our lives. Chapter 10, verse number 18. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. That's the point the writer really wants to drive home to his friends. What sacrifice are you going to make? Sure, let's build a temple. But what are you going to do there? There is no sacrifice that can be made. It's been done once and for all in Jesus. Now again, we've got to keep remembering our situation is very different to the readers of this letter. They are in danger of slipping back into old covenant Judaism. That's not a danger that we face. But we do face a danger that means we need to listen carefully to what the writer says here. So there are plenty of people who would call themselves Christians, but they're just a little bit confused about what it is that makes them right with God. So let me come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. If you call yourself a Christian, why do you think God accepts you? Why do you think that God is willing to have you as one of his people? Why do you think God should let you into heaven? Because the answer to the question is this. Jesus and his sacrifice for our sin. Now that may sound a little like I'm stating the glaringly obvious, but I'm not sure that it is always that obvious for plenty of people who would call themselves Christians. See, we can't stop those little subtle thoughts that creep into our head that say, there's something else as well. Yeah, that's great. That faith in Jesus thing, that's terrific. But surely you've also got to do this or be like this. We fall into the trap of thinking that God accepts us for some other reason. Most of us have a hard time shaking the idea that God accepts me because of the things that I've done, because of my good, ex- good behaviour, that that's what makes me acceptable to God, or my nice manners, or the warmth of my personality. Surely those things must count for something in God's eyes. Maybe you've given money to the church, maybe you've helped run the youth group, maybe you've been a Bible study group leader. Surely that's got to help to make me more acceptable to God. But none of those things make you acceptable to God. None of those things bring you into a relationship with God. God accepts you because of Jesus and his sacrifice. He forgives you because Jesus took your place in his death on the cross. Now, there are two very obvious levels of application for this idea in our lives here today in Balmain. First is this. If you are here today as someone who claims that trust in Jesus, that you've accepted the forgiveness that comes in Jesus, then don't live as though you're trying to earn God's acceptance. Live your life in the freedom that you've been accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you cannot be any more forgiven by God. You cannot be any more accepted by God. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you are part of God's family now and for all eternity. 
Don't live as though you're trying to earn God's forgiveness or God's favour or God's acceptance. Live lives of gratitude, giving thanks to God for the forgiveness that he's shown you in Jesus. But the other very obvious level of application for us is this. Census figures in Australia tell us that around 70% of people believe that there is a God out there who is both personal and knowable. 70% of our population believe that. It's an amazing statistic. But less than 10% of people attend church on a regular basis. My guess is many of those people who would think that God is out there They've probably got some confused idea about how it is that you get yourself right with God. How you actually have that relationship with God. I had a year three scripture class a few years ago and right at the beginning of the year, one of the things that we do is we just do this little worksheet that gets us to think about what God is like. And one of the things that you can do on the worksheet is write down any question that you would like to ask God. And one of the little boys in my class, I was reading these after the lesson, collected them all up and I was looking through it. And one of the year three boys had written, if I am very good, will you let me go to heaven? It's a little sad, isn't it? I mean, it's delightful that he wants to have that relationship with God. But it's just a little sad that he thinks that it's going to depend on how good he is and that he'd need to be very good. My guess is a large number of that 70% are probably thinking that way. Legendary, legendary entertainer Frank Sinatra, uh, shortly after, shortly before he died, he made a rather unusual approach to the Pope. He told the Pope that if the Pope would hear his confession, that he would give half his fortune to the Catholic Church. Now, at that stage, back a few years ago, he was estimated to have been worth around about $300 million. He said that if the Pope were willing, he would give $150 million to the Catholic Church for the Pope to hear his confession. The Pope actually declined the offer. But Sinatra was very clearly working on the idea that you might be able to buy favour with God, that if you've got enough money... You can make things happen. But that's again a little bit sad, isn't it? I mean, Frank really needed to read this section of Hebrews, didn't he? I mean, you don't need to pay money to be forgiven by God. God's forgiveness comes to us freely in Jesus. There's nothing that Frank can do to pay for his sins. There's nothing that you and I can do to pay for our sins. Forgiveness is found in what Jesus has done for us. All that can be done has been done by Jesus. And what we've got to do is make sure that our trust is in him. It's a great message, isn't it? And it's certainly a message for sharing. We need to make sure that the people who we know aren't confused about this idea. That they're actually clear that relationship with God comes about simply by accepting the forgiveness that comes in Jesus. We can tell people clearly how it is that they can be made right with God. That forgiveness and acceptance with God come to us 
through what Jesus has done in his sacrifice, in his death on the cross.